Tom Dreesen is going to be on the show, <laughs> and we're going to bring him on right after this. The following is a Tony Lasano podcast, an Opie production on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. This is the Minutia Men Celebrity Interview with Rick Kempfer and Dave Stern. The following is a Tony Lasano podcast, an Opie show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. This is the Minutia Men Celebrity Interview with Rick and Dave. Okay, joining us on the phone from uh, lovely California is uh, a man who's well-known in Chicago. He's a great comedian, uh, Tom Dreesen. Thanks very much for being on the show with us. I'm happy to do that, and um, and I'm from Sherman Oaks. I'm li- calling you from Sherman Oaks, California. It's a beautiful day out here. It, it, you know, the view and the scenery here is fantastic. Nothing like downtown Harvey. <laughs> well, or uh, the studio. I'm looking at Rick's garage right yeah, here. Yeah, right. We're at Mount Prospect, <laughs> the lovely Mount Prospect, Illinois, right now. Uh, well, welcome to the show, Tom. Thanks very much for taking the time. Uh, Tom, you you and I have met uh, quite a few times. I don't. You probably don't remember me, but I, I used to produce the uh, John Records Landecker show on uh, WJMK when he was there, and you were a frequent guest on the show. And you'd, you'd come on the show and you had this great story about how John Landecker became an example for you when you would talk to young comedians about how not to do comedy. Is that is that a true story? <laughs> well, what happened was years ago, we're going back in 1971, I think 72, there were no comedy clubs uh, in, in America. I mean, like we have today, over 500 something comedy clubs. So those of us in Chicago who were starting out, um, you know, we had to, we did charities, you know, we would j- j- appear on stage anywhere, anytime you could. There were comedians that would join AA, even though they didn't have a... <laughs> hey, it's an audience. Time. It's a good room, right? <laughs> but, but you had to find some place to get up on stage. So we, I used to say we'd play a phone booth if you promised a call, you know, because we needed that stage time. So... Tim and I had gone to New York and seen the improvisation and it was just starting out then and how comics could get up every night and try out the new material. So I came back to Chicago and talked to a man named Henry Norton. Uh, he owned a few clubs, but he owned a club called the Le Pub. And um, I said to him, could we, he had, his worst night was Monday night. You know, he didn't have much business. So I convinced him to let us do a comedy night there on Monday night. And it, it became a, uh, Chicago's first comedy club. And so the word got out, and I did John's show, of course, doing promoting it, and uh, and so everybody's coming there. And John said, "I've always wanted to try stand up. I'm going to be there. I'm going to put together what I think is a uh, a ten minute routine, five to ten routine, and then I'm going to get up." So he got there, and of course there. Were comedians who were getting up who had some stage presence and some stage times and they were new kids and when John saw that he ordered a pitcher of beer <laughs> and then he, he drank that so fast that he thought he'd order another pitcher of beer and, and then he and then John got up after two pitchers of beer and I've always said to everybody do not drink two pitchers of beer before you do your first stand-up comedy you know? Uh, well, we've got John's phone number, so you can actually have them call him, or, you know, and he'll be happy to to, to relay that to him. Uh, you had mentioned you know who t- came with him that night was Bob Surratt came with him. Oh. Yeah, that's right. 
Surratt always, <laughs> we always, whenever we get together, we talk about John's debut as a <laughs> his first and his last appearance. <laughs> That's true. He's never done it since. Uh, you had mentioned uh, Tim Reed just a couple of seconds ago, uh, and you guys were the first mixed race comedy team. Did you? And I'm, this is probably a stupid question, but I assume you got heckled at some point by racists while you were doing your act, or 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 were you? I don't know. Let, how did that all shake out? Well, let's go back to. What that era in 1969, Tim Reed and I went on stage for the first time. This is our 50th year in show business. For wow, congratulations! We went on stage for the first time, <clears throat> we, we, yeah, we were America's first black and white comedy team. In history shows, we were the last. You know, we uh, we we did it for six years all around the country. In 1969, the Vietnam War was raging. I had just gotten out of the service. Students were protesting all over America. African Americans were rioting in every major city in America, right. getting disenfranchised from the system. And, and and even one of the largest riots in the country was in Harvey, Illinois, where I where I grew up at. And so uh, this is what we were experiencing. There was racial tension all over America, and Tim and I. We're going out there trying to make, and the backdrop was the Vietnam War and, and, and the riots, and Tim and I were just trying to make America laugh. You know, we did high schools and colleges, and we, we went to 11 prisons in one year. And, wow. um, you know, to just not, not lecturing or anything, just trying to make people laugh. Right. And, and, and we paid the price for that in many cases. On the fourth time run, we went on stage in Chicago Heights, Illinois. A guy put a lit cigarette out in Tim's face and then yeah. tried to beat the... Oh my God! And I boxed when I was in the service, but he outweighed me by a hundred pounds. And but it, it was it was a real Donnybrook, you know. And uh, at University of Illinois, one time a guy took an ice ball, went outside in the snow, and packed an ice ball and threw it and hit me in the face on the stage oh, while we were doing our show. However, that being said, ninety-five percent of the people that saw us liked what we did. But there was always that one element. Yeah. If there was a, a black guy who, uh, now we worked all black clubs too in the north and the south. There were again, there were no comedy clubs, so we worked what they call the Chitlin Circuit, black-owned, right. black-operated nightclubs. <clears throat> the Twenty Grand in, in uh, Detroit, the High Chaparral in Chicago, the Burning Sphere in Chicago, Guys and Gals Lounge in Chicago, Sugar Shack in Boston, Club Harlem in, in Atlantic City. These are the kind of clubs we worked. If there was a black guy who hated white people, hated them with a passion, he wasn't mad at me. He was mad at Tim for being with me. Oh, wow. And, and, and vice versa, if there was a white guy, a redneck, who hated black people with a passion, he wasn't mad at Tim. He was mad at me for being with him. Interesting. That'd be the N-word lover. And, yeah. and they didn't mind calling me that every now and then. And, and uh, down in Atlanta one time, I had a, a real skirmish with three guys in the, in the men's room down there. But that's just... It was just what we had to put up with. We paid dues that no other comedy team I'll say. ever had to pay. We wrote a book called Tim and Tom, an American Comedy in Black and White uh, that came out about five years ago. And now, I mean, you can get it on Amazon. I'm not trying to sell the book. It's, but yeah. uh, now because of that book, there's talk of uh, us may, of maybe doing a series. Not Tim and I, we'd produce it. Uh, but someone playing uh, Tim and Tom from 1969 to 1975 and maybe do it as a series or as a feature film. We're, meet, we're meeting with people as we speak right now as I'm talking to you. you know? That would be it's spectacular. Yeah. That would great. Be That's a great fantastic. story. I'd, I'd definitely go see that. Uh, you know, a lot of people uh, know you uh, also from your many appearances on the David Letterman show when he had his show at various different shows. And you and David go way back. Um, how did you meet him? And and do you still talk to him today? Do you, how, what's that relationship like? 
I talked to him yesterday for two hours. No, okay. <laughs> we, we talk on the phone. When he had his his show, we would talk for like five ten minutes catching up. But not, and 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 I did his show about fifty times. Right. And oh, wow. um and uh, so we we'd always go to dinner afterward when I'd go to New York. But how I met him. I was, you know, new out on the West Coast. The comedy team had just split up, and in 1975, uh, you know, I, I came off stage one night, and there was this redheaded guy with a beard, and he had a old red pickup truck that he drove from Indianapolis with, <laughs> and he said, "I sure enjoyed your show, Mr. Dreesen. You know, <laughs> so you're set. You know, so I, I, you know, I'm very." Uh, Outgoing and and uh, you know extroverted, so I said to him, "Hey, no kidding. What's your name, Dave? Dave Letterman. Where are you from, Dave? Indianapolis." And so I immediately start talking sports. You know, Indianapolis. Let me ask you something. Who did you root for as a baseball team when you were going? I went, to, took it to him. Had I realized he was such a private person, you know, when I when I first met him, I didn't know what a you know private guy was, and I took it to him. And so the uh, next day I saw him, hey, what are you doing? And before you know it, I invited him to go play racquetball with me. And then we started playing basketball together. And by the time I realized that he was really very private, it was too late. We were already friends. You know? <laughs> that's, oh, that's great. Had I, had I known that he was that shy and private, I probably would have respected that. And not, not, But I'm so extroverted, I just kept taking it to him. And we became the best of friends and are to this day. Um, you know, he... I, I'm so proud of him and all he's accomplished in his career. Yeah, he's done pretty good. Uh, I went with him the first night that he uh, hosted the Tonight Show. You know, I, wow. I was in the wings and, and, wa- and watched him do it the first time. And um, he, He's just a, a great friend, and there isn't anything that I wouldn't do for him, and I know that same. he has that same feeling for me. Um, could could, we, could you we, tell him that the, the beard's got to go, though? I mean, <laughs> I like the beard. Uh, do you? Yeah, yeah, I do like the beard. I, you know, I, it makes him look like 20 years older, I think. That's just, you know, I, I, I love so, David uh, Letterman. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, well, what? I, I asked him the other day, I, I, you know, you're not doing stand-up anymore, so why don't you become Santa Claus at Macy's? <laughs> <laughs> now, that would be a great <laughs> Netflix documentary yeah. there, yeah. I think. Um, Frank Sinatra. He told me yesterday, i got to tell you something yeah. so funny. Sure. All right. He told me something yesterday. He said, you know, you always tell the story how we met outside the comedy store. He said, and um, he said, I think it'd be better if we just told everybody that uh, I, you came off stage one night and accused me of stealing one of your jokes, and I denied it. But then you beat the hell out of me in the <laughs> right. parking lot. That's they a better said, one. I want to start telling people that. I said, "No, why would you tell people that?" He said, "Because well, it's just a better story." Said, <laughs> uh, speaking of stories, you got any Frank Sinatra stories? You uh, opened for him for many years, and uh, you know, being a fly on the wall there must have been a pretty uh, amazing time. Tell, do you have any Frank Sinatra stuff? Well, let me let me correct you. First of all, you said that I opened for Frank Sinatra. I like to think that he closed. (laughs) (laughs) Good point. Right. Exactly. Noted. Now he, I toured with Frank Sinatra fourteen years in forty-five, fifty cities a year, and it was just the greatest experience of a comedian's lifetime. Uh, In that fourteen years that I toured with Frank. I turned down more sitcoms and more opportunities for shows than most comedians get offered in a lifetime. Uh, and, and for a reason. Uh, at that same time that I was touring with Frank Sinatra, I was also on a 
a tour, a golf tour called the Celebrity Players Tour. It was basketball, baseball, football, hockey, tennis, and show business people that were 10 handicap or below. Mm-hmm. So it was Johnny Bench, Mike Schmidt, Mario Lemieux, uh, John Elway, Dan Marino, Michael Jordan. <clears throat> we had 42 Hall of Famers. And <clears throat> in, um, in show business, it was Matt Lauer, Brian Gumbel, me, Smokey Robinson, uh, Eddie Marinaro, people like that, and Jack Wagner. And it, it, and we were paid for this. Uh, Rick Roden won over $2 million on that tour. Wow. We did 10 to 12 cities a year. Wow. I was one of the founders of that tour, along with some other guys. But here I was. To, as a little boy growing up in Harvey, I had eight brothers and sisters. We lived in a shack, you know, raggedy poor, holes in my shoes, you know, uh, all my childhood. I shined shoes in taverns. I set pins in bowling alleys. I caddied in the summertime. I sold newspapers on the corner, all to help feed my brothers and sisters. None of this I regret, by the way. Yes. But when I was on my hands and knees, shining shoes in bars, Frank Sinatra was on the jukebox. You know, come fly with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And here I was, years later, flying with him all over the world oh my on his God. private jet. It, it was surreal sometimes uh. when he'd say to me, hey, Tommy, we're going to Chicago to the Chicago Theater. We're going to knock him dead. And he'd yeah. like, give me a little sock on the jaw. And and he didn't know, but inside I was like, <laughs> you know, ready to burst in the <laughs> A little boy jumping up and down, you know. Yeah. And, and then the other thing was, I always loved sports. I played sports, you know, a lot as a kid growing up. But I was a little guy, so, I, you know, playing football, I was running back, but getting hurt most of the time. And, and uh, I played basketball and in the service. I played basketball and I, I played in a fast pitch softball league till I was 58 years old out here in L.A. Uh-huh. I, I played left field so and I played basketball until uh, I was 48 in the league. I was always very active sports wise. But at that you know, local level. If you would have told me when I was growing up that one day you're going to fly all over the world with Frank Sinatra in his private jet and grace the same stage with him, and you're also going to be competing with the greatest athletes oh of your lifetime. You're going yeah. to be getting into an arena, and you're going to compete with the greatest athletes. I'd have said that's absolutely impossible. Yeah. But here I was doing that. So uh, Christopher Morley, the author, once said, success is living the life you want. So whenever they came to me with a sitcom offer or something like that, and I thought, well, I'd have to give up the Celebrity Players Tour, competing with all these wonderful athletes that I that I admired my, all my life, and I'd have to give up, you know, flying with Frank and appearing on stage with Frank Sinatra in 45, 50 cities a year. It was, it was a no-brainer. I said, sorry, I don't want to do it, you know. That, and now you're doing our podcast, which is which probably is the, the probably pinnacle the, of your yeah, career, I would exactly. imagine. Exactly. And, and, you know, Tom, you and I... Uh, like shit. I said earlier, yeah. this is the pinnacle. It's all <laughs> yeah, yeah, Right. You'll, you'll never top this. You, you know you're not getting paid, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so we, talk, we talked about sports briefly, and, and you and I share a common love, and that is the Cubs. I know you're at Wrigley every year singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game. You were kind enough, uh, Dave and I are publishers, you were kind enough to contribute to our book called Cub Sessions, which uh, you did with uh, Becky Sarwati Maxwell and Randy Richardson. And and I have a book called Every Cub Ever, which is out now. We'd love to send it to you. Which, so after we get off the air, uh, get me. I'll get your mailing address, and we'll. Uh, and Rick actually wrote a book that literally has a biography of every, every cub, cub ever. ever. Yeah, two thousand one hundred and really yes, yes, right. I know you. I know you'll love it. We'll send it to you. Rick spent a lot of time oh. in his basement <laughs> doing this. Rick has never kissed a girl, Tom. <laughs> but but I wrote a great book. <laughs> but anyway, uh, about the cubs you talk about coming from harvey and i I know you've probably told this story 
but I can't remember ever hearing it. How does someone from the south side of Chicago, Harvey, uh, become a Cubs fan? And is that how you also became a boxer? <laughs> very, you're, you're very. You don't know how realize how correct you are. I was like five, six years old, listening to Cub games on the radio because my dad listened to Cub games on the radio. So I'm five or six years old, and I'm becoming a Cub fan. I'm a little boy. I'm, I'm hearing names like Andy Pafko and and Peanuts Lowry and and uh, and uh, Phil Cavaretta and uh, Bill Nicholson. These are all my, in the book. Yeah, my dad was Cub. <laughs> now I'm five or six years old hearing that. I became a Cub fan, not realizing that I was in enemy territory. Yeah. Okay, all right. And, but, you found out pretty quickly, though, didn't you? All White Sox fans, <laughs> all White Sox fans around me. By the time I was eight years old, I could take a punch. You know, so, <laughs> <laughs> so well, is it a big no thrill to go up there when, when they Pardon ask me? you to come up there and sing? Uh, is is that still a big thrill oh for you every God. time, or is it well, is it old yeah. hat now? I'm doing it now September 19th this year oh, wow. uh, against St. Louis. I'm going to play in St. Louis. And Joe Montaigne and I uh, are tied for the most times of singing on the seventh inning stretch. I think we've done it 17 or 18, ever since Harry died. Right. You know, Joe and I are tied for that. Who's the so, better singer between yeah. you and Joe? Who's the better singer? I love going back. Um, it, it's it's really exciting. You know, first of all, I'm I'm a comedian. I'm not a singer. I sang in the choir when I was a little boy, and you know, when I was an altar boy. But um, for you to go out there and forty thousand people, and you get up in that booth, and <laughs> yeah, it's it's a bit intimidating, uh, you know. But but uh, it's really fun to do, and and you know, Cub fan. I, I've always said this about. First of all, I, I rooted for the Sox too, even though no Sox fan would ever believe that. Jerry Reinsdorf and I are real good friends, and I I go to dinner with him when I come home, and we tell each other jokes, and 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 I love the guy, you know, and so. Uh, but but White Sox Cub fan rivalry is hard to describe to people who don't understand it. When I was growing up, if there was a bar on the south side of Chicago that was a Sox bar, you didn't walk in there with a Cub hat on. Right. You know, uh, that is so it, true. It was, My people can get yeah. kind of ornery. Yeah, it, Dave right. is a White Sox fan. And I've often said that I actually would have prefer the Cubs losing versus the White Sox winning, to be honest with you. I am, I am one of those petty, small, little White Sox fans. But, well, but, you know, you know when, when the White Sox were going to play St. It looked like they were going to – I think they played St. Louis in the World Series a few years back, or it looked like they were going to be. But uh, Mike Downey called me, you know, the great sports writer. He called me and he said, it, 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 will, will Cub fans, if White Sox play St. Louis in the World Series, and St. Louis is supposed to be the Cubs' number one rivalry, he said if the White Sox played – St. Louis, who would Cub fans root for? I said, well, slam dunk, they'd root for St. Louis. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right. No, they would. I said, yes, they would. <laughs> Tom, if the Cubs played Al-Qaeda, I'd be rooting for Al-Qaeda, my friend. <laughs> All right. So we, the, one of the reasons we had you on is because you're going to be in town soon. Please let us know. All the uh, stuff. Where and how people can see you live. I'm, I'm appearing with my one-man show, An Evening of Laughter and Stories of Sinatra. It's a 90-minute show that that I, I put together after Frank passed away. And I, because everywhere I went, people would say, tell me about Frank Sinatra. Tell me a Frank Sinatra story. Yeah. So I put together this 90-minute show, which is stand-up comedy. I mean, the theater goes dark. A screen comes out, and Dennis Farina, God rest his soul, yeah. narrates uh, my about three minutes of my life and then with film. And then I come walking out, and I do stand-up comedy. 
and then I, after about 25 minutes of doing stand-up, I segue over to a bar that's on the stage where there's a bottle of Jack Daniels on the bar, which was Frank's drink of choice. Yeah, and he used and to do I, that too. I, I saw him live once, and, and he would have a little bar up there sometimes and, and act yeah. out to scene at the bar, right? Right. And so what I did do there is I tell a funny story and the audience laughs. And while they're laughing, the lights go out on stage and on the screen, Frank starts singing. You see it, uh, Frank in a video singing. It's quarter to three. There's no one in the place except yeah. you and me. You know, one for my baby. Right. It's a saloon song. When he gets to the chorus, make it one for my baby and one more for the road. He come, He goes off screen and the spotlight hits me and I'm at a bar. And I've come home, and the audience is in a bar with me. Oh, wow. I'm getting chills. Them, yeah, this, I tell them the first time I heard that voice, I was eight years old, shining shoes in a bar in Harvey, Illinois, and he was on the jukebox. And then I take the audience from that little boy from Harvey, Illinois, hearing Sinatra on the jukebox in, in Harvey to one day carrying his coffin out of a church in Beverly Hills, California. Oh, my gosh. So wow. I take him on that journey, and while I'm telling stories, pictures are authenticating the stories I'm telling on the screen. You know, right. um, it's an audio visual thing where pictures and and i have them laughing 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 but i take them to the funeral and i actually have them in tears and then i turn right around and have them laughing again wow and and i close with a funny monologue and then i toast them with the jack daniels and say i wish for all of you what frank sinatra wished for you the very last song that he ever sang is that the best is yet to come wow good night everybody and when i say good night then frank's singing the best is yet to come oh my gosh i got goosebumps thank thank you very much tom for being on the show we greatly appreciate it and uh the best of luck to you and 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 the best uh, is yet to come the best Uh is yet to come exactly right and go cubs Oh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm sure your partner agrees with that. Yeah, yeah. whatever. Yeah, yeah, you we, we will send you a copy of the book, though. Yeah. If, I'll, if, uh, um, I, right after we get off the air. No, please. Um, please do that. Please, please do that. Yeah. You know what? Text me. Well, I'll text you and then just text me a mailing address and I'll be happy to send it out to you. Thanks, Tom. Okay. Thank you, guys. Take care. All right. Thank right. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. What a great guy. Thank you so much, Tom Dreesen. That was a, an excellent interview. Special thanks to executive producer Tony Lasano with opishows.com. Opi is hippo backwards. O-P-P-I-H shows.com. Distributed by Ed Silla, the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Great talk at radio isn't dead. It's just moved to a better place. Radiomisfits.com. And Dave will be back again next week with another episode of, of Minutia Man. The preceding was a presentation of Opie Productions. Find our other great shows wherever you find podcasts, including opishows.com. Thank you. This has been a presentation of Opie Productions. Tony, can you shut up?